Please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 14 through Esther 8, verses 1 and 2. Esther 6, 14 through 8, 2. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed behind to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai, became, or, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. It's God's word for his people. You may be seated. And let's pray once again as we ask for God's help. So, Father, we ask for eyes to see your amazing love and mercy to those who don't deserve it, and that what we do deserve, you do not give to those whose faith is in Jesus Christ, our great reward. And so we pray for eyes to see your hidden hands as you work out your sure and certain promises to save your people and conquer every enemy. And we ask that our hearts might love you supremely as we encounter you in your word for your glory, we pray. Amen. So we return to the book of Esther today, and where in chapters 1 and 2, you will remember one queen is banished, and Esther wins the favor of Ahasuerus and becomes queen. Chapter 3 begins with a surprise that though Mordecai saved the king from an assassination plot, Mordecai is not rewarded, 
But rather, Haman comes on to the scene, being promoted to second in command of the entire empire, and receives all the honor and accolades that go along with that position. But Mordecai the Jew will not pay homage to Haman the Agagite. So Haman responds with a plot to kill every Jew in the empire, to which the king agrees with, uh, to after hearing Haman's lies and a bribe of 10,000 talents of silver. This is not an overreaction. It's actually the fruit of an ancient enmity between God's people and their great enemy, Satan. Since the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, the serpent has sought to destroy the seed of the woman so that the serpent crusher would never be born. And so this hostility in Esther isn't simply Haman against Mordecai, but an Agagite against a Benjaminite, an Amalekite against an Israelite, the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent who seeks to wipe out God's people so that the serpent crusher will never be born. So then in Esther 4, Mordecai finally, for the first time in this book, identifies with God's people after he hears the edict against God's people and how it came about. He gets word to his cousin, Queen Esther, that she and her people are under a death sentence, and he wants her to go to the king and do something about it. But the huge problem with that plan is, as everyone knows, no one is just allowed to simply go to the king. If you show up without being summoned, you die, unless the king mercifully extends his golden scepter to you. But Mordecai will not relent, telling Esther she can't assume she'll be spared from the genocide just because she's queen. And he states that deliverance will come for God's people. And then the famous line, for who knows? Maybe all that's happened in the years leading up to this point was for you, Esther, to be queen at such a time as this. And so Esther says to have the Jews in Susa fast for three days, and then she'll bravely go to mediate for her and her people's lives before the king. So then in chapter 5, when Esther enters the king's court, Ahasuerus mercifully extends the scepter to her, and then gives her a blank check promise that he'll do whatever her wish is, whatever she requests. But surprisingly, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet rather than asking him to supersede the genocidal edict. When he asks her again at that banquet later, and again he promises that he'll do whatever she wants, she again delays and invites them to another feast the next day, And if they both come and attend this feast, then she'll tell him her request. Well, in the meantime, Haman is loving all of this as he alone dines with the world's most powerful couple. And as he heads home, he is elated. He is full of gladness. But all that is shattered on his way home when he passes Mordecai, who continues to bow or pay homage. And when he arrives home, he gathers his friends and his wife around him and tells them all his achievements and how amazing he is and how awesome he is and how great he is. But all that means nothing to him so long as one man won't honor him. And so his wife suggests that he builds a 75-foot high gallow and asks the king to hang Mordecai on it. And Haman loves that idea. And so construction begins immediately throughout the night. And first thing in the morning, 
Haman heads to the king to ask for Mordecai's execution. And as chapter 6 begins, we see the king cannot sleep. So during the night, one of his servants begins reading the empire's chronicles. And that servant just happens to read the account of Mordecai thwarting an assassination plot. But he also hears that Mordecai was not rewarded. And so Haman is brought in to answer the king's question of what should be done for the man the king delights to honor. And Haman, being so full of himself, can't imagine anyone else other than himself would be the one the king is trying to figure out how to honor. And so he goes overboard with all his ideas. And the king loves each and every one of these suggestions. But then in a stunning few seconds, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, begins to fall. He must do everything he suggested, but not for himself, but for Mordecai, including being the one to lead the city and honoring the man he hates. And this time when he leaves the palace, he's not filled with gladness, but with shame and sorrow, and he covers his head and hurries home. This time when he arrives and tells his friends everything that happened, they prophesy that this is just the beginning of Haman's downfall. And it's at that moment the eunuchs arrive in Esther 6.14 to escort Haman back to the palace to attend Esther's banquet. And this is where we begin to see Haman's wife's words that his downfall is sure begin to come true through three surprising reversals. Three surprising reversals. First, a surprising revelation. Then a surprising resolution. And then finally, a surprising reward. So first, Esther's surprising revelation in verses 1 to 4. Now, After the feast was over and the wine course was in full swing, Ahasuerus again asks, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? And again, this blank check promise, even up to the half of my kingdom. He's, ba- it's, he's not necessarily be literal. This is a metaphor. He's saying, I'm going to do whatever you want. It will be fulfilled. And third time must be the charm, for she finally tells him why she's risked her life. She says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. The very words of the edict we found in Esther chapter 3. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Now, we as readers have known since chapter 2 that Esther is actually not Esther, but Hadassah, a Jewish orphan living with her cousin Mordecai in Susa, who has instructed her from her youth to hide her identity as one of God's people, to assimilate, to become Persian. And she did that until this very moment, for the first time in her life, and she did it in front of the king and Haman. Have you ever had one of those uh, days where you say to yourself, Things can't get any worse. And then, a little while later, you say, why did I ever say that? Now, I'm pretty sure this was one of those moments for Haman. 
Earlier that morning, he led a parade for Mordecai, his enemy, which utterly humiliated him. But now, he's thinking, hey, I'm at the palace. I'm the only guest of the king and the queen. My edict is still intact. Okay, Mordecai's not hanging on the stake in my backyard, but his doom draws near. But as Haman relishes the empire's finest wine, sitting next to the empire's supreme ruler, being served by the queen, the worst day of his life, surprisingly, gets a whole lot worse. As Esther, the queen, the queen of all people, reveals she's part of God's people that he's trying to annihilate. Now, the king at this moment still doesn't know it's Haman that is behind what Esther is telling him. And it's actually a display of Esther's great wisdom because she appeals to the king's self-interest. If I have found favor in your sight and, and if, I, if I please you, and don't, I know you're not entirely aware of all that's going on. This is happening behind your back. She's appealing to his self-interest and without casting any blame on the king. And she says, someone's gone behind your back to bring you great harm financially and politically. That's why she says, if we were just being moved around the empire, I mean, that's one thing, but, but you're being harmed. So I'm, I'm standing up for you, king. You don't know what's going on. Someone is going behind your back doing you great harm both financially and politically. Because not only am I your wife, I'm, I'm the queen. How would it look if I was sold out from under you and not even for money? That'd be one thing if you could show the kingdom how much wealth you have. But I wasn't even sold or my people sold for a price. We've just been sold to be annihilated. And she does all this without naming names, which is brilliant because it actually increases the king's fury. But Esther couples her wisdom here with, with courage. She knows Persian edicts can't be revoked. And so even though she's displaying great wisdom, she's actually risking her life here because when she identifies with God's people, it puts her under an unrevocable death sentence. But her surprising revelation that puts her under this death sentence is the way God's people will be saved. She must identify with them in order to secure their salvation. We were just talking about this um, with, with, with uh, some people, but some, some people really like to drive. Like they, get, they get an opportunity, they just want to get in their car and, and drive. They don't care where they're going, they just love the road. I do not understand that appeal. I, I, let's fly or let's just not go. <laughs> but when I was a kid, I remember traveling a lot because uh, we drove everywhere by, by car me in that 1980s station wagon with the back seat that faces out the back, you know, with the wood paneling on the side. And I definitely didn't even like driving then. And so any chance we'd get, I'd love to stop and, and pull over. And we often stopped at those scenic overlooks, those spots where you get a breathtaking view of the area. And the Bible actually has plenty of scenic outlooks for those with eyes to see. And Esther gives some of the best Old Testament 
views, scenic overlooks of God's saving mercy and grace. And right here in our chapter is another one, several actually. But in this moment, when Esther finally identifies publicly with her ethnic people, and she does so to secure their temporary deliverance, we get a breathtaking view of God's saving mercy and grace. Because when we get to that spot where we can see out over the entire Bible, we see here in Esther a foretaste of Jesus. Esther was born into the people of God, but she hid it. Jesus willingly took on human flesh, and then in his baptism identified with those who rebelled against God. Those who were not his people, he willingly took on and became and identified as their people. And while Esther's solidarity with her people only just risked her life in interceding for them, Jesus bore his people's sin and gave his life, dying in their place on the cross. And while Esther pleads with Ahasuerus to figure out some way to save their lives from an unjust edict, Jesus' righteous blood is our plea. And it secures our release not from an injustice, but from God's justice against our sin. And what a glorious view of God's love and grace. What a marvelous foretaste of Jesus Christ do we see in Esther 7. Now, let's give Esther her, her due. She deserves to be seen as someone with courage and, and great wisdom to identify with her people facing death. But let's not mistake her for the ultimate hero. Now, if you remember our Jonah sermons, uh, we began that series with a word association game. When, when I say Jonah... You say, don't, don't do it, don't. Most, yes, God, right? You can do it if you say that, right? God. Most people, if you say Jonah, they say fish. Now, my prayer was by the end of the series that you would say God rather than fish. So let's play the word association game again, but here with Esther. When we hear Esther, we say the name of the one never mentioned in this book. Having eyes to see what's hidden, the glory of God's amazing providence, fueled by his marvelous love and grace. That God is behind the scenes orchestrating all these things, and though he's never mentioned, he is the hero. And so this book, or the people of this book, aren't the heroes. They point us to the hero. Esther's commitment to her people points us to God's steadfast commitment to his people in the glorious gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, who became a servant, who left heaven, who left his throne to be born of a woman, to be born under the law so that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. And like in the book of Esther, we see that God was at work when, when we were far off. That God planned our deliverance long before any of us ever knew we even needed it. And so when I, or I pray that when you hear the name Esther, what comes to mind is God's unfailing commitment to keep his promises by identifying with his people. And he did so even, and especially so, when we're at our covenant-keeping 
worst. Not because we deserved it. Because he delighted to show the glory of both his justice and his grace in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we see this continue on, and secondly, in a surprising resolution. God's unfailing commitment is seen in a surprising resolution. In verses 5 to 10, Esther's surprising revelation leads to the surprising resolution of Haman's plot against Mordecai. Now remember, as of yet, she has not named who sold her and her people to destruction. And so when King Ahasuerus hears Esther's wish is for her life and her request is for her people to live, his fury rises as he asks, who would do such a thing? For all her delaying before, now Esther quickly responds, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And we expect Ahasuerus to stand up angrily and deal with the enemy. But now he delays and heads for the garden rather than for Haman. And you must think, Esther's like, here we go. I did it, I risked my life, and now he's walking out, and now we're all dead. And it just, it just gives us a reminder that even when we think we can interpret infallibly all of God's providence, we, we just need to take a deep breath and remember we're not God. That even if we think this is it, God always has a way. Now, History tells us that God is doing something here in the moment. In, in fact, when Esther thinks she's lost, God is securing her victory. Because history tells us Haman in this moment faces an impossible choice. He can follow the king into the garden, which in a moment you'll see technically he's supposed to do. But he already knows, as verse 7 says, Ahasuerus has decided his fate. He's not going to follow the man who wants to kill him for trying to kill his wife. That's a death sentence. He's, he's got a death sentence, but following him basically ensures it. Haman can run, but he's not going to out, outrun the Persian army, and running will just cement the king's decision that he's guilty, and death will be his fate. So he decides that his only chance is to stay with Esther, but palace law says no biologically intact male can be alone with the queen. That's why the king has eunuchs. When the king is present, even then, you can't be within seven steps of the queen or one of his concubines. So with his world closing in on him, Haman decides against palace law that his only chance is to plead with the queen. But just when he thinks it can't get any worse, he stumbles Trips, God gives him a little nudge. We're not really told. All we're told is that he falls onto the couch where Esther sits right when the king walks back in. Another, oh, it just so happens, right? Well, he's trying to plead with her. We, we know that. Uh, he's not trying to assault her. But now the king has an easy way to deal with Haman. And so the eunuchs cover Haman's head, which is the death sentence, and they say, what do you think about the gallows Haman intended for Mordecai? And in a perfect picture of justice, 
the king likes that idea and says, hang him on that. And again, we know from history, as we've seen in prior sermons, that, that they didn't hang with rope. They actually impaled them on the wood itself. And so they hang Haman 75 feet high above the city in these gallows in his own backyard. The ones he meant for the fall of Mordecai have become his fall. And then we read this, this interesting statement, then the king's wrath was abated. And so in this surprising resolution, I want us to consider two things that we encounter. One, God will conquer every enemy, and two, God will save his people. This surprising revolution makes us consider that God will conquer every enemy. And we encounter this not only in Esther, but throughout the scriptures. Listen to some of them. Psalm 73, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Again, this is Asaph's prayer. He's like, the wicked never, they, the wicked have everything always going right for them. It's the righteous people who get pushed down in the mud. You know, I'm trying to live a clean life, God, and it just never ends up well for me. Yet everyone who doesn't care about you, who hates you, who rebels against you, life just always goes along for them. Maybe you felt like Asaph. But finally, he gets to the moment where he considers and realizes, truly God sets them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, just like Haman, swept away utterly by terrors. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, Ecclesiastes 12. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And Jesus says in Luke 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. The final judgment day of God's enemy, enemies is on the horizon. And, and, and we see throughout the scriptures that what's on the horizon breaks into the present many times. When that coming judgment breaks in in temporary spots, in, in brief moments throughout human history, it serves as both a warning to God's enemies and an encouragement to God's people. God will judge every deed against the standard of, of his holiness, which means everyone, no one, in all of human history on their own can pass that scrutiny. And so eternal death is sinful humanity's just judgment. It may seem like God doesn't see or doesn't know about either your hidden or public sins. We may see stark rebellion not be judged in the moment that it is revealed, in the moment it's un unveiling, in the moment it's going about. We might think God, he must not know or he cannot see or maybe he's not acting or maybe he can't act. We, we begin to think that in these moments when God delays justice. But Haman's surprising downfall warns us that God will conquer every enemy in his perfect timing. And that warning is an encouragement to God's people because it means that even in the most dire situations, 
God is at work to bring about his purposes. And that the most dire situations then are never too dire for God. He will keep every one of his promises. He will not lose one of his people. He is working every situation out for his glory and our ultimate good. And that doesn't mean our lives will be free of trials or suffering or tribulation. In fact, it means sometimes God is going to bring those sufferings and trials and tribulations into your lives so that you begin to trust more and more that it's never too dire for God. And that he's going to turn those trials, sometimes what's meant for your harm by other people and your enemies, into moments where the very instruments that are being used against you are the very instruments that will save you. That's why if Psalm 7 says it this way, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. And we should read, and God smites them. But look at what God does. Look at how God is bringing about his justice and glory and saving purposes. He, this is the wicked man, makes a pit, digging it out. God lets these plans unfold. But then, and he falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull, his violence descends. Let's interpret Psalm 7 in light of Esther 7. Haman makes a gallows, building it up 75 feet high, and then falls onto the stake that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. On his own life, his own violence descends. And, and this happens over and over and over throughout Scripture. And it's most seen, or it's most clearly seen at Calvary, which is the most surprising resolution in the Bible, is it not? What Satan thought was the Son of God's execution was the very instrument of Satan's death, of his defeat. Jesus became sin for us and entered into our death. And for three days, the forces of evil thought victory was theirs. Ah, but then the glory of that resurrection morning, where death was put to death forever. But Jesus' death was God's plan to save his people from their sins. Jesus' death was God's plan to bring them back to life. That's why John Owen famously wrote, death was put to death in the death of Jesus Christ. When the serpent struck the serpent crusher, God was crushing the serpent, sin, and death. But how does that work out for his people's salvation? Because the wages of sin is death. I mean, sin can't just be swept away. God can't just overlook it. Sin must be atoned for. But this is the other thing we must then consider in this surprising resolution. God will conquer his enemies, but that conquering is actually God saving his people. So that's the second thing we must consider. God will save his people. If God didn't intervene, everyone would be his enemy. 
everyone would face his just judgment of our sin. But God, simply because of his great love and grace, planned to save a people for the glory of his name. And we see here in Esther 7 a picture, a part of how he does that. He does throw by propitiation. Propitiation. It's the Bible's word for turning away wrath through sacrifice. How was King Ahasuerus' wrath satisfied, abated, turned away? Through Haman's death. As Haman propitiated Ahasuerus' wrath through his death, so in justice, our death would propitiate God's wrath against us and our sin. So propitiation has to happen for wrath to be abated. Now, many, many people reject, let's just deal with this for a moment, the idea that the God of the Bible acts in wrath. They reject that idea. They say it's not true. It's not what this word means. It's not what we see in Scripture. But that's the fruit of a faulty view of both holiness and sin. God must oppose sin to remain faithful to himself. He has to. If God just allows sin, God would cease to be God, and then everything would cease. So God must oppose sin to remain faithful to himself. God's wrath, then, isn't a weakness or a problem we have to overcome. God's wrath is what happens when a holy God collides with sinful humanity. And since God is God, his wrath against sin is nothing other than the expression of his righteous holiness. So you can say, in one sense, God is love, God is holy. We do, we do want to say God is not wrath. Actually, wrath is the fruit of God's love of his own glory. Wrath is the fruit of God's holiness and righteousness when it collides with sin. It's not his character in the same way as holiness and love. So we, we have to be careful. God is not wrath. God is, God is love. But love is not opposed to wrath. God, uh, God's wrath is his love for his own glory, which must oppose sin. Happy to talk more about that. I, I know you've been sitting for a while and you had coffee, and it's probably long gone. So be happy to talk more about that. But, but we have to see that it's not a fault in God. And it's, and it's not us ascribing to God some you know, weird, violent view that often is the character, caricature of people who believe that, that God acts in wrath. It's an expression of his love for his own glory and his holiness. And if God didn't act in wrath against sin, he wouldn't be righteous. And if he wouldn't be righteous, then no one could be saved. And so God's wrath is only a problem if you have a low view of both God and sin. But this is where we have another scenic overlook in Esther. God's just wrath, his justice against sin, his justice against his people's sin, is propitiated, is satisfied, is abated through 
a death. Not Haman's, but Jesus' death on the cross. That's this foretaste we see. Haman's death points us to the cross. It's the heart of the gospel that Jesus identifies with his people in their sin and joins himself to their fatal judgment that their sin deserved. It's the heart of the gospel. Jesus goes in our place and propitiates through his death what we deserve. That was God's plan, though to save his people from their sin. God's holiness condemns us in our sin, which allows God to remain just, but God's righteousness is seen in both judging sin, Christ in our place, and then God is seen as a righteous justifier because Jesus propitiated it. So he's not just sweeping our sin under the rug, Jesus paid for it. And so God saves his people through the propitiation of Jesus' death. And when God unites us then by faith to his son, his justice has already been satisfied through his death. So when he unites us to his son by faith, he takes us who were once enemies, who were once far off, who once had nothing and were without hope. He turns us, the surprising reversal, from enemies into sons. We're co-heirs with Jesus. What's true of Jesus becomes true of us by our faith union with God the Son. So no longer do we face the just wrath our sins deserve because God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sin. We've been reconciled as his enemies, now his friends. Enemies, now sons. We've been reconciled to God himself in Jesus Christ. That's the surprising resolution. It should be us facing our own death, and then having the king's wrath abated. But God's judgment becomes God's salvation of his people. What a surprising resolution. Which leads us then to see finally the surprising reward. A surprising reward. In chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, Esther, or excuse me, Ahasuerus gives Esther all of Haman's possessions, and then gives Mordecai the signet ring Haman received in chapter 3, making Mordecai second in command of this vast empire. And Esther then sets Mordecai over his enemy's house. Uh, Remember, at the beginning of chapter 6, a lot of this began at night. Mordecai's probably been at sleep, and even throughout the day, unaware that all this is going on. Unaware that the gallows had his name on it. Unaware what Esther was doing or facing, unaware what was going on. And then, the man standing under a death sentence (laughs) receives honor and riches beyond imagination. And so as we close today, let's stop one more time at this gospel scenic overlook. Brothers and sisters, outside of Jesus, in our sin, remember what we were. We were without hope facing God's just wrath and our eternal death. But when God set his saving love upon us and gifted us faith in Jesus, we who were once enemies are now God's people. We once who had nothing now have everything and more in Jesus. 
God has blessed us, Ephesians 1 says, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In him, we have a guaranteed inheritance because it was Jesus who propitiated God's wrath. There is nothing left for God to pour out against us if you are in Jesus because of Jesus' precious blood. And so the Spirit then seals this guaranteed inheritance until we gain it. We can't lose it. It will not be taken from us. We cannot be shaken. God is with us and God is for us. To the praise of God's glory, our surprising reward is that everything that's true of Jesus is now true of those whose faith is in him. But friend, that is only true of those whose faith is in Jesus. The proud won't have the last laugh because the plans of God's enemies will never succeed because he opposes the proud. But that's the bad news part of the good news. The gospel is good news because though God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. If you don't humble yourself before God, friend, the things you put your hope in for life will become the very things that keep you from it. They will be the very things God uses in your downfall. And yet God in his mercy has, for now, put off his final victory. So if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Do not presume upon God's mercy. Turn to Jesus, whom God sent as the propitiation for his people's sin. And not only will you receive life, but you will receive far more beyond what you could ever ask or imagine in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, may Esther 6-8-2 give us the grace needed to persevere as we wait for God in his perfect timing to bring about his final judgment of evil and to establish his eternal kingdom once and for all. Don't lose hope. Friend, don't presume upon God's mercy and brothers and sisters, don't lose hope. For the most dire situations are just another opportunity for God to make his power and love and wisdom and glory shine all the brighter. He is at work even now. And one day soon, the surprising reversal of the first becoming last and the last first will take place when our Savior comes again to take us to himself. And on that day, there we will forever be. So until that day, we wait with expectant hope because God will not fail to conquer all his enemies and preserve every one of his people until the end. Let's pray. Father, we, we admit that we too often presume upon your mercy. We too often presume that we know what you're doing. We too easily lose hope. We too easily are discouraged. We too easily forget all the glorious things you've given us in Jesus.
And so we pray that our text today would remind us that you are the God of surprising reversals. That you will not lose one of your sheep, that you'll bring each one of us home, and that you'll do so in ways that multiply your glory. That often our plans aren't the way that you would get the most glory. And so help us humble ourselves to be servants of your glory so that you would maximize your glory in each one of our lives so that on that last day, our only hope is the one who we finally lay eyes on. And until that day, give us the grace to wait with expectant hope, we pray. Amen.